Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the People Power Politics Podcast brought to you by CEDA, the Center for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. Hi everyone and thanks for listening. I'm delighted to be joined today by Eileen Marie Tripp, the Wireless Research Professor of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I know, Eileen, that many people will have joined us today because, like me, they will have been inspired and informed by your brilliant and pathbreaking work on women's movements, uh, gender quotas, women's political representatives um, over the last you know, 20, 30 years. One of the things that I've been wondering about recently is, you know, we've gone into this kind of era of democratic decline. Has that had a sort of significant impact on things like women's representation? And because I know that you track these things quite closely, could you give us a sense of what the latest data tells us about the key trends? Are we seeing you know, greater representation of women than in the past? Has there been any kind of big movement over the last few years? I think that would be a great baseline to start the conversation. Yeah, so from what I can tell, um, you know, there was this kind of a big upward trend in terms of democratization in the early 1990s going on into perhaps around 2005. And then it kind of leveled off overall in Africa. And so some countries got became more democratic, but a lot also um, reversed. And so what I see it um, is a kind of a leveling off. But at the same time, you still have, you know, a large ma- majority of countries in Africa are either fully authoritarian or some form of a hybrid semi-authoritarian, semi-democratic. But at the same time, we've seen the um, about uh, there's about three times more women in parliament today than in 1995, and this includes the, the authoritarian countries. So that really the face of African parliaments has changed quite dramatically, and this is uh, due to the adoption of of gender quotas of various kinds. You know, if you go back to 1995, only seven countries in Africa had gender quotas. Today, it's about 73 percent of countries have some kind of a quota. Also, we have women speakers of the House in one third of African parliaments, um, and that exceeds the world average of um, 20%. And this again increased after 2000. We have three times more women ministers than in 1995. And in some countries like Rwanda, it's 54%. Guinea-Bissau, it's over 50%. And a large number of countries have over 40%, like South Africa, um, Ethiopia, Mozambique, Malawi, Angola, and so on. And so in uh, Africa, we have proportionately more women ministers um, than than globally. So, and then we have more women running for president, more women heading political parties, and so on. So we're talking about a landscape that's changed pretty dramatically. And it's fascinating, isn't it? Because my sense is that if we actually play this to quite a lot of people, for example, in Africa, they might be surprised to know that they have more in each of those categories you just identified than actually other parts of the world. And this is one of the things I always try and bring home to people that, you know, some of the worst representations of women are not, you know, in places like Africa or necessarily in authoritarian countries. They're often in established democracies, which don't always do well themselves. So that that sort of brings us, I think, to another question, which, which I often get, you know, when I talk about these issues, which is why we see such high proportions of women in some countries that are highly authoritarian and why, you know, gender quotas, which I know you've worked on a lot, were introduced in some of those places and why also perhaps, you know, democracies don't do more or aren't more successful at being able to respond in the same way in all cases. How do you kind of explain that that trend of authoritarian women's representation? 
So there was kind of a confluence of trends that happened around the same time. Again, starting around the 1990s, late 1990s, 2000s, you had a large number of countries that came out of a major conflict in Africa. And so the biggest jumps that we see, you know, really dramatic jumps took place in these post-conflict countries, and especially the ones that had led liberation movements. The end of conflict kind of opened up what we would call in political science opportunity structures that, it, you know, you had peace accords being drafted, you had new constitutions being written, new electoral laws, and all of these allowed for women's movements to push for changes in, in for example, quota laws. Or And so that was one, one aspect of this confluence. But then there was also the democratization that I referred to, this shift from one party to multi-party systems, and that also put new pressures. Ruling parties that had been the only show in town all of a sudden they had to deal with these other parties. And so they had to figure out how to continue maintaining vote share in a new situation. And so then you saw among the authoritarian countries the adoption of reserved seats, which are seats that are allocated and just set aside that only women can run for from any party. It could be independence as well. And these were seats that ruling party could control much more easily than the other. There are other kinds of quotas like uh, legislative quotas that require that individual parties themselves decide how they want to allocate their seats. And then there's also voluntary party quotas, which again, the ruling party couldn't control for individual parties. So you, you only find the reserve seats in authoritarian countries. You don't find them in democracies. And so that became a mechanism to maintain vote share. Then a third factor was the, the international pressure, but also in Africa, you had regional pressures from African Union, from Southern African Development Community, SADC, um, that set targets and, and pressured countries to increase women's representation. And of course, the United Nations had the fourth um, Women's World Conference in 1995 in Beijing, where they adopted a platform of action that required all member states to take some action to increase women's representation. And so this trend of uh, adopting quotas was was not just an Africa thing, it was, you know, global. And that's when you began to see the increase in quotas after around 1995. And then you also had donors in many con contexts putting pressure as well. You know, there was all these different things, but they were kind of happening at the same time. And so th this, I think, in large measure accounts for what, what happened in Africa. So I guess that leads to another question, which which is often raised, you know, when I when I teach on this of students, etc., which is if you get women in parliament in a situation where it's partly because there's an authoritarian regime, there's pressure from donors, perhaps there's an idea that, you know, strengthening women's representation humanizes the regime, makes it look better internationally, it becomes a world leader, which as you noted before, Rwanda is now in terms of women's representation, yet, you know, has very closed elections, very high levels of authoritarian control. Do women in that context actually, are they able to exert a significant impact on policy? Do we actually see, you know, we could all agree that that symbolic gain is a good thing in and of itself. But I think a lot of people are interested in when it actually then translates into, you know, concrete kind of improvements in politics around issues that perhaps particularly impact on women. Do you think that those cases actually see significant change? Or do you think that, you know, we see high levels of women, but not necessarily more empowered women? I mean, it all depends on what you look at. So you you will see quite a few changes, not just, you know, the, the most dramatic changes are really in political leadership, but you will see also among the, the top ranked countries when it comes to education or health, you will see 
many authoritarian countries up there. And in general, I would say that I'm not making a claim that authoritarian countries do better than than democracies, even when it comes to women's political leadership. It's about the, it's roughly the same, depending on which point in time you look at it. And even then, it's it's all the time. It's very, very close. So um, when it comes to women's representation in parliament, women's representation in in a cabinets, when women's representation in local government and in, in subnational level, it's pretty much the same in Africa. There's not, not much difference. But there are some other differences in, in, in the outcomes. In terms of what makes a difference, first of all, one has to look at what causes uh, changes in, say, legislation. Well, it's not w- women alone. <laughs> Usually it's political parties that have, you know, the, the large say in, in what gets taken up and what kinds of laws get passed. And so women are subject to party discipline, um, as are men. And so they just don't go off on their own and do their own thing, usually. I mean, they can have an influence, and they certainly have had. And one sees that in countries like Uganda. And, and the other the other point I think I would make is that they're just the studies just are not there yet. We just don't have very much evidence yet. There are a few people who've worked on this, like Perez Zetterberg and Amanda Clayton have showed that there's been more funding put towards health in countries that have women's representation. But I think that even then, you know, it really depends on what you're looking at. So for example, you might see changes in some areas like maternal mortality rates going down and so on. But then you'll see when it comes to inheritance rights, you know, no change. LGBTQ rights, even going backward in a country like Uganda. When it comes to, you know, a lot of resistance to marital rape laws, um, abortion laws, there's, there's a lot of pushback. But then other, again, you have other countries that are actually relaxing some of the restrictive colonial era laws around abortion. So, you know, it's a, it's really a mixed bag and it's not, it, de- it really depends on what you what you look at. <laughs> so, and, and, and again, just to keep in mind that women, you know, don't have the final say <laughs> in, in all of these matters and that the responsibility really rests with not just with women, but with political parties in terms of getting laws changed and, and getting them implemented. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, some of the research that we've done, you know, led by Susan Dodsworth and inspired by some of your work, you know, kind of backs up that, you know, that it's complicated and it, it's a it's a sort of very long-term process. One of the things that we found, which I'm sure, you know, you've also reported on in your work is that, you know, there are certain ministries and certain issues on which women are more likely to be put in legislative committees. So they're much more likely to go on legislative committees when it comes to education and healthcare than they are in security and finance. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be the case to us that by forming effective alliances, obviously with male MPs working across party, but also using those roles in those committees where they can be up to a third or half of the committee, even in places where they're actually a very small proportion of parliament, it is possible for women to actually exert a positive influence. But doing so, as you indicate, requires a lot of strategy, a lot of team building, bringing other MPs to their side, effective collaboration with civil society. And of course, you know, this is in a sense, as you say, not surprising, because that's kind of how all legislation works. It's a long process of negotiation. And most progressive legislation, whether we're talking about trade unions or women's issues, you know, it takes that long, long process. But I think, as you say, one of the things that strikes me is that there is a growing amount of evidence now that, you know, at the very least, having women in parliament in higher numbers is having some impact in some areas and therefore kind of people often who dismiss that on the basis that well it's a quota these women won't actually be able to change anything my sense is that the evidence is growing that you know that's too simplistic that's far too negative and far too simplistic now i know that you know one of the 
things that your research is increasingly focused on is the role of women, women's movements, women's representation in authoritarian contexts. You published a great book recently on that in North Africa. You're now looking at those issues again in sub-Saharan Africa. Maybe you could tell us a little bit, you know, about your new book, the title of what you're working on right now, and what sort of drew you to that question of women under authoritarian systems. I don't have a final title, but it's on the topic of why autocracies in Africa promote women leaders. I guess, you know, part of what drew me to this was just that people were generalizing about authoritarianism, like it's, it's just all negative for women. And, you know, there's nothing happening there, nothing to look at. And, you know, this is an area where women's movements have been pushing for a long time in Africa, they've been advocating for women's leadership, and and they've they've been making gains. It's a very complex picture. And there's not like one story here um, to tell. And what makes it complicated, I think, especially, and this is the other thing that I wanted to try to unravel was this, some of the ambiguities, because on the one hand, you do have women's movements pushing for these changes. And yet at the same time, authoritarian leaders are using women, instrumentalizing them in many cases um, for the purpose of staying in power to, to gain legitimacy to both internationally, to soften their image, perhaps globally um, after war or after jihadist activity or after coup d'etats or uh, in the case of you know Tunisia, the uh, president came in and got rid of the <laughs> parliament, got rid of the constitution, got rid of the prime minister, and then put a woman a prime minister in power. And and so and in Uganda, we saw a case where uh, after the you know very brutal elections in 21, President Museveni turned around and appointed a woman vice president, woman prime minister, woman deputy prime minister, speaker of the house, party whip. Already about half the Supreme Court were women. But anyway, even though the women's movement took credit for that, and we're very happy with that, on the one hand, others in the movement also said, you know, wait a minute, this is, we don't even know who these people are. Some of them, they're just coming out of nowhere, they're being used. So there is an ambiguity here, and, and our conundrum is how, is how I call it in the book, that perhaps that is the, the nature of, of authoritarianism, is that it, it poses all these kinds of authoritarian dilemmas, where on the one hand, women are making gains, and it's opening up our opportunities for them, but at the same time, they're, they may be being used for other purposes. So that's the that's kind of what got me into looking at the regime issue. I think the Uganda case that you mentioned there perhaps is a good segue to the next question I was going to ask, which kind of asked the question of, you know, why perhaps some democracies haven't done as well as we would hope. You know, you might imagine that in countries where women are often a slight majority of the electorate, there would be an impulse or pressure. Of course, these are often countries that are explicitly, you know, committed through their constitutions or their legislation to various forms of equality. And yet we often see both in Africa, places like Botswana, but also globally, you know, countries like the US historically have been very poor on women's representation. And I remember one of the things that I was told by a a female MP in Uganda was that actually in some way she felt the women's movement had had more freedom uh, when Uganda was a no-party system than after multi-partyism had been reintroduced. Because once multi-partyism was reintroduced, she said, the party whips told you what to do, uh, whereas you had a bit more freedom in a no-party model. And she almost saw the return of multi-partyism as actually constraining the women's movement and dividing it up on a partisan basis. So I'm intrigued as to, yeah, why don't we see democracies actually performing a bit better on this? And does the Ugandan case, you know, give us some, uh, you know, reasons to think about, you know, the challenges that multi-party politics might actually generate to, you know, more successful and effective women's movements? 
Well, several things. And, and Botswana is a, is, is a good case to look at because it is, you know, it, it has this very low level, I think 11% of the parliamentary seats are held by women. But actually, they don't do so bad when it comes to representation at, in the cabinet and at the local level. And they are actually the top performer in many areas in, in Africa around when it comes to um, the gender gap in education and health. They're the top performers. And also globally, in terms of economic empowerment, they have the most women in CEOs and women in, in that own companies anywhere in the world. So it depends, again, it depends on what you're looking at. And, and it's just really in Botswana, it's really just the legislature and the women's representation at that where they don't do well. Everywhere else, they actually do quite well. But what happened in Botswana, as in Namibia, was that after some years back, it wasn't, it was around, I don't remember the exact year, but um, it was in the 2000s, 2006, I believe, they got upgraded from being a least developed country to a middle income country. And that meant the donors who had been funding the women's organizations pulled out and their aid got cut. And on the one hand, you know, they, yes, they got a different ranking, but on the other hand, um, some of the support for the women's movement that had been pushing and had made some, some substantial gains in that late 1990s, early 2000s, things then changed for them. And so the pressure wasn't there, but the movement's still there. It's just taken different form. It's a younger movement, but they continue to, to make cha legislative changes. And a lot of the changes that they've made, as in um, autocracies, has come through the courts themselves. So, for example, they just a few years ago, they decriminalized same-sex relations. Um, this came through a decision of the courts. Then, and the other thing, other thing I just want to flag is that there really isn't a big difference between, in general, between the democracies and autocracies when it comes to women's leadership and or women's rights more generally. But one thing that they share in common is, first of all, just that the modal party system in Africa is in both democracies and autocracies is where you have a kind of hegemonic executive rule, and then you have it surrounded by these little parties that are kind of unstable and keep changing. And in both democracies and autocracies, where the ruling party Party, the dominant party is entrenched, and I call it entrenchment. So they've been there for more than three electoral cycles, they've stayed in power. Those are the parties that do the best for women. And so, and that's both in countries like Namibia, Saxwapo, and, and or Botswana, but also in RPF in Rwanda, Chamachama Pinduzi in Tanzania, National Resistance Movement, NRM in Uganda, and so on. So those parties do the best. And part of it has to do with the fact that they often have instrumentalized, not always, but they've often instrumentalized women in certain ways. But part of it's also that they, if you're, if you're a newcomer to politics, like a lot of women are, who are you going to run with? You're going to run with the party that's going to that you know is going to win. That's been there forever. That's got the most financial support, and so on. And that's and so women themselves choose often to go with the ruling party. Um, in autocracies, it plays out a slightly different way than democracies, and that is. Because if you look at countries like Rwanda or Uganda, the ruling parties really go after the opposition and both opposition men and women, but women really get um, sometimes often targeted more than more than the men do. And I mean, uh, it, it depends, but they're but in a different, slightly different way. And so, so Zimbabwe, for example, passes all these laws around gender against gender based violence. But on the other hand, they have no problem arresting women and charging them with treason and b brutalizing them. Um, in very in very specific ways, and in same thing in Rwanda. Rwanda has again, like we said, the highest rate of representation of women in the world, sixty one percent in the legislature. But if you want to run for president 
as part of the opposition and you're a woman, you could forget about it because they've Im- imprisoned them. There's been several, two women in particular who tried to run, who were imprisoned and they carried out a smear campaign against them, spread photographs of, you know, one of them was uh, nude photos and so on. Again, we don't know who did all of that, but clearly this was a way to signal to others, like, don't, don't bother, don't try. It really had a chilling effect on other presidential aspirants. These are the kind of multiple sides of autocracy that we see. And uh, it's not, like I said, there's not just one story here. Now, I think, you know, that that's a great message, right? That actually, you know, the world is complicated and generally attempts to make big simplifications usually fail and don't do justice to the reality that we see. I think one of the things maybe, you know, be great to touch on before we wrap up is is the question of what remains as the most significant barriers uh, to women's representation. My experience from, you know, talking to women in Malawi is that most women sort of suggest two or three factors. And I wonder which you think, you know, is more significant or whether perhaps they're they're enmeshed together in a way that means they can't be separated. One is they often feel that it's harder for them to access money and funding for campaigns and elections are expensive if you're running, especially in first-past-the-post systems. And they often feel that, you know, for historical reasons, they're not as well networked into sort of big man or clientelistic networks so they don't have the cash. The second is that they feel that often, you know, they don't get the support sometimes of their own families or their extended networks, perhaps because of social norms or because being seen late at night in public venues or out in conversations with men in bars is something that can be used against them in terms of identifying them as a certain kind of woman. And that means they can't do what a lot of men do. Um, And then some have actually said that the biggest challenge is actually their own parties. So opposition or ruling party uh, people had many stories about, you know, parties shifting the day of the party primary or fixing the party primary so that a female candidate doesn't actually win, even though she might be the most popular candidate uh, within the area because she's not accepted within within the party. So that those are a few that I kind of hear when I, I go around and do interviews. I just wonder, you know, where do you think is the kind of biggest challenge now? And, you know, how do you think that then impacts on, you know, the prospects that we might see for improved women's representation over the next years. I think that uh, all of these are very important. I, it's it's hard to pick one of them as being more challenging than another because it would depend on the circumstances. But even in there's some countries where women are do get support from their families and in other places they don't. Um, but all of these can be huge obstacles. And it's not just ruling parties that can be difficult for women. It's also the opposition parties can do the same, can also be very reluctant to support women. I think all of these factors, funding, families, support, the support from political parties, all of these things, I think, are really critical. I think these are the main, would be some of the main issues. Also, there's some other difficulties that we see that we find more in Africa than elsewhere. One is it's not always clear which constituency you can run in. So this is a problem that women would face that men don't. If you run in your husband's constituency, they'll tell you in some countries, you came here to marry, not to rule. (laughs) But then if you go to your birth, your natal constituency, they say, but you're married, you don't come here, (laughs) you've you've left us. And so that that can become a real dilemma. It's a kind of a catch 22, you can't go to either place. So you can't even get out the gates if you don't have a place to run. So those can all be challenges. Another issue in some countries where women are very new to politics is just not having the skills, not needing more kind of leadership training and knowing how to navigate the political terrain. Also, increasingly, 
um, you know, I alluded to political violence, but that's an issue like in countries like Kenya, where there, there's violence to begin with, men face that in, in politics. And, and then you have newcomers coming in, like women, who, who don't have the connections and so on. And then all of a sudden, they're getting accosted in the marketplace and so on, just because they're running for office. Or one woman, she told me she had, you know, she her hair was pulled and she had to, she ended up actually hospitalized. And at which point her husband said, I don't think you should be running. And she was like, no, no, I'm going to run. So she went back and she's now she did run and she's she's now in the parliament but still i mean it, those are real obstacles to who wants to run when you know that you're going to get beaten up by 20 young men who are going to come after you with and Ned, you know, that, that's a really important point that we should flag, right? Because we know that in most countries in the world, it's women who get more threats of violence than men. Uh, this is also true of the UK. I think the Labour Party MP, Diane Abbott, is one of the w- women in the world who gets the most, you know, hate messages online and far more than male equivalents. And so there is obviously a gendered aspect to this, particularly perhaps in some of the online violence. And while, as you say, men are often targets of political violence too, uh, this seems to to be particularly nasty, particularly prevalent, and perhaps also in terms of, um, you know, established social norms, even more mm. damaging in some ways for women. And I think in some ways, it's quite impressive and interesting how much progress has been made in Africa when we think about those initial figures that you were giving us about that jump, given the extent of, of some of the barriers. The very mm. final question I wanted to ask, which is partly my own kind of personal interest, is is about quotas. And I know that you've done a lot of work on quotas and the introduction of quotas and one of the things that you know I think is interesting for countries that are now thinking about quotas is what's the best way to do it to actually make sure that you empower women's voices and you actually enable women you know to have an effective say. Mm-hmm. It sounds like from what you were suggesting, you know, the kind of top up of, of women that's basically controlled by the president uh, is less likely to do that. I guess those women are more likely to be loyalists of the president and perhaps know that they depend for their positions on the president and, and for not speaking out against the president. On the other hand, the creation of new constituencies for first-past-the-post elections can be controversial. I was in Malawi when this was being debated and there was a lot of pushback on the idea that new constituencies would be created to enable more women to be directly elected to parliament. So just wondered what you thought about, you know, from all of your experience, if you're designing a quota, not so much from kind of ease of implementation, but actually to make sure that women can have a voice, what's the best kind of quota to introduce? Because of course, they're, they're not all the same. And also it depends on what kind of, like you said, what kind of electoral system you have, if it's a first past the post or if it's a party list system. The best kind usually is is the legislative quotas where where legislation is passed that requires all parties to take measures to put, for example, women, either alternate them on the party list or put them at the top of the party list if you have a party list system or put so many percentage of, of your candidates have to be women. Those are the kinds of systems that are the easiest to somehow guarantee that the outcome is what you want. But it has to have some teeth. So sometimes they'll say that you can't be seated in parliament unless you implement a quota with your candidates or you know, there's a fine or some other kind of a, um, or you won't be on the ballot. There's all kinds of mechanisms that you can use to require that all parties adhere to that. Of course, voluntary party quotas are great if you, if they stick to them. I mean, and they've done a really good job in, in, in uh, Namibia and also the opposition parties have adopted them as well. And they don't have a, any kind of 
a legislative quota, but that requires that the party itself is committed to that. And that can be very iffy. In, in Botswana, they, I think at one point, all the parties had some kind of quota, but they never implemented it at all. It, it never got put into effect anywhere for any party. So it all depends on the party. And that's why it's it's less reliable. But you know, when it works, it works if the party's committed. And then finally, the reserved seats, they, are, they can become a ceiling <laughs> instead of a floor. So then they say, okay, well, you've got your women have got your seats, run for those seats, don't run for the open seats. So you often don't see the level of representation going much beyond the, the reserved quota. Well, thanks so much. It's been a brilliant discussion. And I love that we've had kind of practical elements as well as more theoretical and comparative ones. I know you're coming towards the end of the next book. So we'll we'll be looking out for that on our bookshelves soon. Uh, but that also gives me an opportunity just to ask whether you've had any thoughts about, you know, what you might be thinking about next and what other issues you see as being really interesting for us to study in this area over the next few years. Well, I'm I'm <laughs> three chapters into another book, <laughs> which I hope to then work on when I'm finished with this one. Um, and that's a global study. And I really want to situate Africa more globally and as I move forward, taking insights that I've learned from Africa, in particular, the relationship between conflict and women's political leadership and political citizenship. And I've expanded it globally to look, starting with the case of Finland. Finland was the first country in the world that seated women in the parliament, and it was the first country in Europe where women got the right to vote. And this was at a time when Finland was under Russian control, and it was after the Russo-Japanese War. And so I look at, at World War One, the impacts after World War One, at the end of empire after World War Two, the end of the Portuguese empire and bringing it up to the present day. So I've got the Finnish case, I've got the Ottoman empire, I've got Tunisia, Mozambique, and then I have Switzerland, which was a country that didn't, where women didn't get the right to vote until 1971. And in one canton, it wasn't until 1990. And so there was a case of, they just, they were neutral. And every opportunity to get, to, to increase women's representation or to give women's political citizenship, they missed the boat on all of them. But they, all the conditions were there. But there's one factor that was not there and they didn't, they were spared being involved in World War One and World War Two. And as a consequence, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but as a consequence, there was no change in the political elite that would have encouraged them to incorporate women as, as citizens. So that's that's kind of where where I see things going. I think that we need to think about Africa also, not just within Africa, but really think of it more globally and, and what lessons we can learn from the African experience. Fantastic. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And certainly something, you know, that you've been really good at, I think, so far. And I'm sure that this uh, new book is going to be another exciting piece of scholarship. I'm amazed you managing to finish one while having three chapters written of the next. That's something I've never achieved. So thanks so much. Uh, thanks for all of the great scholarship on this issue that has done so much to illuminate it and I think inspire others to work on the same area. And we look forward to the next book. Okay, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to the People Power Politics podcast brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. To learn more about our centre and the exciting work that we do on these issues around the world, please follow us on Twitter at at CEDA underscore BHAM and visit our website using the link in the podcast description.